When I was a child, the thought of swimming terrified me. I wanted to be able to swim, but I didn't want to go through the difficult process of learning how. For a long time, even the thought of putting my head underwater hampered my progress. When I finally got used to that, I still had trouble combining the strokes and the breathing and the kicking. But floating, aha! Well, it was a revelation to me to figure out that this was something I could do. I still remember learning the dead man's float. <laughs> Just dunking my face, letting my feet rise, and being still. I learned that I could float like this for as long as I wanted to because it didn't take much effort to propel my mouth upward every now and then for more air. It was liberating. Finally, eventually, I also learned that I could float on my back and breathe all I wanted while I paddled gently around the deep end of the pool. I'll probably never exert the effort to become a great swimmer, but I love being in the water and I especially love floating. It's summertime now. The warm weather has finally arrived and is truly sticking around. Ideally, summer is about warmth and relaxation. I hope you get to have some of this, because today I've returned from an abundance of it. In most of the places my family stayed on our Arizona and Utah vacation, there was a pool. So I did a lot of swimming, but far more floating. Honestly, the whole trip was, for me, about floating, with or without a pool. I needed some time just to be, and I got it. I feel replenished and ready for more work, though this time I'm determined not to wear myself out quite so quickly. There is certainly work to be done, and not just at the church office. Shortly before my vacation, I took an afternoon to help our refugee resettlement office. I picked up three bins of groceries from them in Auburn and delivered them to Afghan refugee families around South King County. At the first home, only the wife was present. Mindful of the modest hijab she was wearing and my presence in her home as a strange man, I understood that I should not stay long. I emptied the bin for her, she thanked me with a smile, and I left. At the second home, only the children were present. Mindful of my presence as a strange adult, I also understood here that I should make my visit brief. The oldest child helped me empty the bin and thanked me, and I went on my way. At the third home, though, the entire family was present. The husband invited me in warmly and insisted that I stay a while. The family has no furniture to speak of, but they have decked out their living room with a beautiful central rug and pillows all around the edges. This didn't feel like poverty, but simply a different way of making a comfortable living space. Why would I need a chair to sit on when I could sit cross-legged, lean against the wall, and be presented with a tray full of nuts and chocolates by a friendly nine-year-old boy? Why would I need a couch when I could find myself sipping a generous amount of green tea and engaging a man in what conversation we could achieve through his broken English and my carefully attentive ears. 
Throughout my time in this family's home, though I felt a little awkward at the cultural disparity, it was clear that nothing more was expected of me than to enjoy being there. The whole point of the family's hospitality was to help me swim less and float more. By the end of the visit, the man had invited me to return as soon as possible and to bring my wife and child with me. I told him I was about to go on vacation, but that I would get in touch upon my return. Nevertheless, we immediately connected on WhatsApp. On June 22nd, when a massive earthquake in Afghanistan killed thousands of people, I checked in with him to make sure that none of his family members had been affected. And on July 4th, he texted to wish me a happy Independence Day, a sentiment which reminded me not to take my American freedoms for granted, even in our current difficult and tenuous political situation. I shared my concerns about this with him, and in reply, he reminded me to choose faith and hope over despair. I have to admit that when I try to imagine inviting his family into my home, I don't know how I could be nearly as welcoming. But then I am of a different culture, and we have our own ways of doing things. Hospitality takes effort. Building friendships takes effort. It means going out of our way to think beyond our own lives. It means knowing what is culturally expected of us and doing it as well as we can. If we want to enable our guests to float, we ourselves have to do the swimming, right? Surely this is the mindset of Abraham as he welcomes three strangers coming out of the desert. Surely when Sarah mixes a tremendous amount of flour to bake bread, she knows this is precisely what should happen in such a situation. And as Abraham stands in attendance over his guests, everybody understands that this is just our culture, the way we do things around here. Likewise, thousands of years later, when Jesus comes to her home, Martha knows what is expected of her. A whole bunch of men are here for dinner? Well, that means the women need to spring into action. Head for the kitchen, prepare a feast, take care of all the details. Uh, Mary, Mary, where are you, Mary? Hey, get off your duff and come help me. We have to do what's culturally expected of us. But in this stressful moment, Jesus specifically sides with Mary. Martha, Martha, stop swimming so hard. Just float for a while, like Mary is. Now, I feel a lot of sympathy for Martha. If Mary doesn't get up and help her, who's going to prepare all this food? Who's going to clean up these dishes? These are fair questions, as I'm sure our hospitality committee can attest. Well, after I preached at the 8 o'clock service, the ever-astute K.J. Byford pointed out to me that no meal is actually mentioned in this passage. Thank you, KJ, for doing what all good Bible readers should do. Start by going back to the received text and ask yourself what you're assuming and why. Maybe it's not a safe assumption that Martha's hospitality would involve food. Or maybe it is. But have you ever been a guest in someone's home and found you could never have a conversation with your host because she kept getting up from the table? 
Sometimes I want to say, hey, you're doing enough. Sit down so that we can enjoy one another. Really, I'm fine. If I need something, I'll ask. Are you an excellent swimmer? And yes, I mean this metaphorically. I hope you haven't forgotten the distinct pleasure of floating. I hope you haven't come to believe that swimming is the only form of water sport that's worth doing. We want to accomplish things. And there's so much to do. We'll never get to the end of it. So we'd better do all the things now. But hang on a moment. I just said that there's so much to do. We'll never get to the end of it. So quit trying so hard to get to the end of it. Be here now. Do the swimming that is in front of you now. Then recognize when it's time to float. The thing is, we're not the only ones working in this pool. Have we forgotten our source, the Holy Spirit? Maybe you have an early childhood memory of being in a swimming pool, your body held gently but firmly on top of the water by a kind adult while you practice stroking and kicking. You are in safe hands. You will not drown. Friends, this is an image for our lives all the time. God holds our souls in life and will not allow us to drown. As we go about learning to swim, we might go under unexpectedly. We might get water in our windpipe and come up coughing and sputtering. The water is infinitely deep. But the water is God who birthed us through water, who teaches us to stroke and kick and who enables us to float. Yes, eventually we will die, as do we all. But even our literal death is only a metaphorical drowning. It's just part of being in the pool. When death happens to us, our task will be no longer to stroke and kick, but merely to do the dead man's float, if you'll pardon the expression. We're still in the pool. And we're still okay. The pool is big enough for both the living and the resurrected. To be in God's pool takes real bravery. And sometimes the bravest thing is to float, trusting that the water will always bear us up. One more story. One day many years ago, I attended a backyard pool party with a bunch of church families and a couple dozen children were present. I let slip that I had never jumped off a diving board before. Suddenly, the kids were daring me to do it. Well, what could I do? I handed off my glasses to some youngster, walked to the edge of the diving board, looked down, tried for a minute to turn around and go back, then thought better of it and just took the plunge. My feet touched the bottom, eight feet down. I pushed off, flipped onto my back, and floated, paddling slowly to the shallow end. And all along the edge of the pool, children were cheering me on. <laughs> sometimes we are to swim like Martha. Sometimes we are to float like Mary. The difficult task isn't so much the swimming, but figuring out when to stop swimming so hard. In this pool for which Christ drowned, 
and which Christ holds together by his very being, we have no need to fear. And in this lies our hope. We are securely established and steadfast in the faith, not by swimming, but by floating. When we swim, yes, we accomplish good things for the sake of others. When we float, we simply receive love. Despite all the good swimming we may do, floating, says Jesus, is the better part, and it will not be taken away from us.